Hey, it's Lynn Galadner, and this is the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm founder of the Your People Marketing and PR Agency, and I lead the Make Meaning Movement, a platform that helps purpose-driven visionaries and leaders do business with meaning. On this podcast, you'll hear stories of how people dare to take chances to live the life they want with meaningful work and purposeful days. There are many ways to fill your life with meaning. Join us at makemeaning.org to learn more. Now, on to the show. Welcome back to the Make Meaning Podcast. Today, I have Jonasen Goldson, Director of Ethical Imperatives, LLC, who teaches professionals how good ethics is good business. He's a TEDx presenter and a community rabbi, as well as a repentant hitchhiker, former newspaper columnist, and retired high school teacher in St. Louis. He's authored hundreds of articles applying ancient wisdom to the challenges of the modern world. Jonasen's sixth book, Grappling with the Gray, an Ethical Handbook for Personal Success and Business Prosperity, is due out this summer. Jonasen, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Thank you, Lynn. Delighted to be with you. Me too. And my first question is, I have to ask, repentant hitchhiker? Tell me about that. For some reason, that's always the first question. I <laughs> uh, well, I, I went to college at the University of California in English, and when I graduated, I had to decide what was I going to do with an English degree? Mm -hmm. So I did the only thing that seemed to make any kind of reasonable sense. I put on a backpack and started hitchhiking across the United States. How long did you spend doing that? Uh, almost half a year. And I thought that uh, I thought that I'd gotten the travel bug out of my system, but uh, it came back uh, a second wave, I guess we would call it now. Uh, so I ended up hitch uh, not hitchhiking, but backpacking across Europe. Oh, wow. Half a year. And uh -huh. I ended up in the land of Israel. And that's where I re reconnected with, uh, with my, my tr the traditions of my of my background. I grew up with really no knowledge of what it meant to be Jewish and um, lived there for nine years, uh, studied, met my wife, had our first two children, became uh, an ordained Orthodox rabbi. And since then, taught high school for 23 years, trying to impart to teenagers a sense of meaning in life and purpose and direction. And mm -hmm. when I retired four years ago and uh, wasn't quite ready to, uh, to enjoy retirement, uh, that's when I started my business as a keynote speaker and trainer, helping professionals recognize the benefits of ethics in business and in personal life. That's amazing. So you're about tshuva, right? Yes, you know the lingo. I do. I spent 10 years as a balat tshuva, um, and I'm somewhere I grew up reform. I was Orthodox for a decade. I say that I'm just Jewish. I mean, we go to a conservative synagogue, but I think we take bits of all the denominations and then some. So um Israel is my favorite place to be. So how envious I am that you lived there for nine years. Where in Israel did you live? Uh, well, I lived for five years in Zichron Yaakov, which is a small town just south of Haifa, and then for almost four years in Jerusalem. Amazing. Now, I have a son living in Tel Aviv and, uh, and a daughter who's took a job in, uh, in New York for a year, but she's going back to Israel in August so wow. two there and two here. Amazing. Well, that's great. Do you ever get the pull to go back? Um, yeah, we try to go back when we can. And our, our long-term plan is, is to retire there because uh, yeah, that's, that's the place where we really feel connected. But it's, uh, you know, it's a very different life there. Yeah. It is. Idealism is wonderful. But, uh, you know, we're all in this world to, <laughs> to accomplish something. Yes. And uh, that, that, uh, that sense of purpose will, 
will direct us in places often where we don't recognize or we never would have thought up on our own. Well, I want to dive into some of this um, ethical imperative conversation. I'm, I'm really fascinated by what you do and I want to learn more about it. And so I know that you say that, and I'm quoting here, our consumer and productivity driven world tries to convince us that we have to choose between being good and being successful. So that's a really loaded statement. And I want to unpack that a little bit. And I'm just wondering, I mean, do you really believe that we face a choice in modern times of either goodness or success? Is it possible to have both? Well, um, just read the headlines. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's definitely a challenge. And uh, certainly uh, the great scandals that we've seen, you know, when you get to be my age, uh, history sort of blends together. I still think in terms of Enron, even though that was over a decade ago. But, you know, the, the great economic collapse of 2008, driven by short-term gains, the attraction of short-term gains against long-term logic. You know, we, every, every administration that comes, comes into the White House or comes into Congress, Congress now seems to promise transparency. And the more they promise it, the less of it we seem to get. Um, and of course, when there's no transparency, that means there's no trust. We don't know what people are really doing. We don't know what they're really planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't believe what we're told. The media tends mm-hmm. to go to one ideological extreme or the other, but we can't believe the reports we're getting. And we're all, we're all, we all have this feeling that, that society is getting worse and the world's getting worse and life's getting worse. And yet we continue to be drawn into these short-term fixes, whether they're quick fixes, whether they're cutting corners, taking shortcuts, uh, whatever, uh, whatever the momentary attraction is, immediate gratification, we all know better. Mm-hmm. I mean, anybody who ever invested the time into anything, whether it was school, I mean, I would, I would ask my, my, uh, my high school students, do any of you, would any of you rather be somewhere else right now? And not in my class, of course, but sometimes, uh, <laughs> sometimes teenagers are not really that keen on, on being in a classroom for, for hours and hours a day. And I would tell them, if they raised their hands, I would say, uh, well, get up and go. Well, we can't do that. So why not? No one's going to stop you. My mother would kill me. No, your mother won't kill you. Trust me, she won't. Get up and walk out that door and nobody's going to do a thing. Well, you know. Well, yeah, I do. They recognize that it's better for my future for me to stay here now, even though I may not feel the greatest gratification or enjoyment about what I'm doing. You know, if you, if you learn to play a musical instrument, if you learn to play a sport, if you trained for any kind of um, career uh, and even going to work, you know, a lot of people wake up in the morning and it's a lot more comfortable in bed than it is going outside. It was until we all got shut in, but uh, <laughs> now we're discovering maybe it wouldn't be so bad to be to, to go to work with the you know, we know better. We know that we have to make short-term sacrifices for long-term gains. The problem is in that immediacy of the moment, the brain is not always fully engaged. Mm. And the same thing comes to uh, our ethical conduct. Mm. When we act in a way that earns the trust of others, when we act in the way that forges relationships with others, that is benefiting us in the long term because that trust and those relationships are going to pay off whether we're a boss, whether a manager, whether we're colleagues, or just in our families and our neighborhoods and our communities and our day-to-day lives. So I guess that's how you would define an ethical mindset. It, it, it seems like some people might struggle with understanding what that means and, and how to go about it. You know, is there sort of a simple, you know, step-by-step process to start thinking and from a more ethical place, you know, where do people begin? There are a number of, of philosophical models of how to be a good person, how to choose good over evil. Individually, they all fail. But when you put them together, you can start to develop an approach 
Uh, the first philosophy is what's called utilitarianism. And that means what is going to provide the greatest benefit to the greatest number of people. Now, that doesn't necessarily work. So there's definitely a flaw in the system, but that, that mindset of what's best for my community, what's best for those around me. That's the first step to get outside myself, to see myself as part of something larger than myself, which is actually the, the beginning of any 12-step recovery program, recognize as something larger than yourself. Mm -hmm. and there's a sense of duty and responsibility to mm -hmm. that which goes beyond me. Mm -hmm. Second step is comes from the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, which is to develop moral values and to do it through logic and intuition. What, so, what, yeah, go ahead. I, I want to stop you there because that was a question that I had as well, because I know that you were talking about people knowing their values. And I think we throw that term around a lot. I know, you know, I work in public relations and marketing. So I work with a lot of clients on establishing corporate values. And we have really deep, long discussions, and it can take time to come up with, you know, what are the guiding values, the principles that are going to sort of direct the business. And I'm not sure that individuals necessarily go through that. Um, you know, I don't even know if I have. And so to know your values, I mean, I feel like that is a really lofty goal. And so how, how does a person determine what their values are and how to let that guide them? That's, a, uh, that's really the question. And yeah. it comes largely from what we're already talking about, discipline, intellectual integrity. And a lot of it has to do, and this is very much in the headlines today, talking to people who come from different points of view, or more important, listening to people. Mm -hmm who come from different points of view. One of the challenges we have right now is the challenge of overreaction. In other words, there are so many things in our, in our politically charged culture and our politically correct culture that simply can't be said. And that's always a problem. The, this, this expression that developed on college campuses, safe spaces. College is supposed to be a safe space in the sense that it's a space for intellectual experimentation. Let's, let's just throw out ideas. Let's ask questions that might be a little bit uh, uncomfortable. Why, why is Nazism bad? Let's talk about capitalism versus socialism. I mean, just having these discussions and being free to, to experiment with ideas, not because I'm invested in them, but just because I want to find out where they go. I want to understand them better. In my TED Talk, I, I, I say that if we don't understand other people, we don't understand ourselves. because we what, do you, to, what do you mean by that? I mean that, that we have to see how we fit into the world around us. You know, it's this, this phenomenon of groupthink. Of, of I only talk to people like me. I only talk to people who think. I only watch news shows that tell me what I already... That's interesting because social media perpetuates that. And so yeah. we can live in these bubbles because we choose who we're following and who follows us. And we choose what conversations we want to be a part of. And frankly, we can mute or unfollow or block conversations that go against what we believe or make us uncomfortable. And, um, but is that any different? I mean, you know, so now we're doing that in the digital sphere. But, you know, hasn't that always been sort of a trend? You know, you have your group of friends, your community, your, you know, you, you sort of gather with people who share your perspective, right? I mean, that's not new. No, it's not new. But at the same time, we have to reach beyond that. Um, it's much more stimulating to people who come from a different point of view. Uh, the great debates have yielded tremendous wisdom because they are debates. And if I'm only here, in fact, they even say that, that um, this is probably the best way to, to prepare your brain or develop your brain to slow down the effects of dementia and, and Alzheimer's, you know, not just, not just doing crossword puzzles, 
uh, or learning foreign language, but actually talking to people you disagree with because it forces me to articulate my values in a way that you can hear them even if you don't already agree with, which means I have to make sure that my reasoning is sound or I'm going to discover that it's not. Sure, sure. Of course, that can be very intimidating. If I'm not secure in my ideas, I don't want to put myself in that situation, so I'm going to retreat into my safe space, a place where nobody's going to challenge me, nobody's going to question me, and we're all just going to continue to affirm the same bromides and slogans again and again and again and become more and more convinced that anybody who doesn't agree with us is either deluded or evil. Yeah, and we're certainly seeing that in our society these days. Um, yeah, we're seeing a lot. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty noisy space right now, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and and it's, you know, it's a wonderful thing when you can actually engage in or, or just witness people, bright people, educated people, thoughtful people, talking civilly and disagreeing with each other. And each one is able to articulate a sound reason for his or her point of view so that we can end up respecting people who disagree with us. And we can find those areas of commonality. And often we'll discover that we're really not as far apart as we thought we were. And then we can start working together to solve our common problem. Interesting. There's so much there. I feel like I could get into some very deep, long and winding conversations about hot topics right now, which I'm going to refrain from. But (laughs) offline, I'd love to have those conversations with you. But, um, you know, it's interesting. I was lucky to be able to study a number of years ago, Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler's series, Michtav Meliahu, Strive for Truth. I don't know if you've studied it, and I'm very rusty, but um, it's a study of Jewish ethics, which for our listeners, if they don't know, it's from the Musser movement that came out of Lithuania. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, how you see Jewish tradition and Jewish text imparting a sense of ethical justice for modern times. You know, I, I come from, you know, I have a great reverence for my heritage and my tradition, and I, I find such beauty in um, studying Jewish text. And so I just wonder if that's something that drives what you're doing and that there's, you know, messages for all humanity. Oh, absolutely. In fact, you, you just described my whole mission statement. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> well, well, let's just conclude now. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. I want to hear it from you. Well, when I, when I finished teaching high school and uh, I thought about establishing my, my speaking business, what I wanted to do was distill all of the wisdom that I've been studying for the last 30 years of my life and put it into a presentation that would have universal re- relevance mm-hmm. and, and not just be directed as, at a Jewish or a religious audience. Take out the language of God, as it were, put it into a language that everyone can relate to. And when I distilled all those values down into a, into a soundbite, I ended up with ethical leadership because eventually we have to recognize that we are responsible for ourselves. Uh, We can't change other people. We can't necessarily change the world. The one thing we can change is us. And if there's a mission statement for, for, uh, for Jewish philosophy, it's be better every day. Because if I'm striving to be better, I'm going to change myself. And by changing myself, I'm going to change the world. And in order to change myself, I may have to take responsibility for things going on around me. And by working to change the world, I change myself. And by changing myself, I change the world. And that means that I have to be able to identify those values that are worth committing myself to. Mm-hmm. And how do you do, how do you how do you do that? You 
you read, you learn, you talk, you study, you think. I mean, how many people spend time thinking? The brain is a wonderful invention. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it can do so much. Yeah. So much power residing in the brain. Why don't we use it more? All the gurus tell us, get out of your comfort zone. Why don't we do it? Because it's uncomfortable. <laughs> That's the point. You go to the gym. You start working out. You start with five-pound weights because you've never, you haven't moved anything in years. Yeah. And, they, and you're sweating after after three minutes. But a week later, a month later, a year later, all of a sudden you realize, wow, I'm losing weight. I'm trim. I'm fit. I, I can I can I'm doing 25-pound weights or 35-pound weights or 50-pound weights. I'm on the treadmill for 45 minutes. How did that happen? Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I have four teenagers and my youngest um, has been really grumbly lately about, you know, really being shut off from friends for the most part. And, you know, the the whole, the parameters of the pandemic. And, and of course, I was compassionate, but I also um, was, was telling them that, you know, you're not alone. Um, we all are feeling things from the unique circumstances of our time. And unfortunately, instead of, lashing out at the rest of us because he's uncomfortable, you sort of have to sit with the discomfort and find your way through it because there's no way around it. And, um, you know, 14-year-old doesn't want to hear that. But um, but it's true. It's like when you're confronted with discomfort, you have to face it. You can't just run away and say, oh, I'm done, you know, drop it and move on to something else because it's like a, it's like a barrier that's just going to keep popping up in front of you if you don't confront it and move through. Exactly. And I mean, I always use the example of the Navy SEALs. Why do they make Navy SEALs run obstacle courses? Move the obstacles out of the way and they'll be able to run the course much faster. The point is not to run fast. The point is to learn to how to deal with obstacles. And you know, we have to, you go to, again, you go back to the I, I always come back to this, this uh, illustration. Right? There's a resistance button on the elliptical or on the treadmill. Well, why do I want more resistance? Because that's how I get stronger. <laughs> take, that in, take that illustration and apply it to our intellectual and our moral lives. Make that effort to think through difficult topics, to talk to people who are coming from different perspectives. You may not agree with them in the end, but you but you may gain a respect for their position and you may end up understanding yourself better in the end. You know, it's interesting because I do think that people, especially in the Western world, are hungry for personal meaning and to find to find their path, to find a spiritual connection. Um, it's interesting. I was listening to the Tikva podcast recently, and they were talking about a study about uh, millennials and whether they identify with religion in America. And it's a, they said that it's the largest population of nuns, N-O-N-E, um, in history as they've been polling people about religion. So when they say, what religion are you? And they say none. But it doesn't mean that we're not religious or spiritual. And so then they started talking about things like Soul Cycle and other places, yoga studios that people will go to, you know, five days a week at 6 a.m. religiously, you know, or they, they'll do hard things, expensive things, things that, you know, make them confront discomfort and, and delve deeper. They're just not in traditional religious settings. And that really spoke to me about how people are searching for that ideology, for that meaning, which really, you know, comes from knowing yourself, from getting quiet, from developing those values, from, from really being purposeful. I mean, what do you think about that? How, you know, do you see that in our society now? Do you see that 
as this yearning and and so having these ethical conversations is one way to fulfill that you know, i've been saying that for for really most of my life uh, growing up in california and going to college there in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. I, I actually worked for a peer counseling organization and so this is a group of people that wanted to volunteer their time to try to help other people it was that kind of a community and everyone was looking for meaning and everyone was looking for purpose Mm-hmm. And the challenge we had was we didn't really know where to look or how to look. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember uh, it was a time when you could get these, uh, the, the, the big popular novel at the time was Zen, The Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating book. But it doesn't exactly teach you the principles of Zen. <laughs> it's not a textbook. Um, we didn't have the, the, the discipline to really approach any kind of disciplined thinking or philosophy. We were trying to just sort of absorb it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we weren't terribly successful as a rule. Mm-hmm. But going back to your, your point, I think you really hit the nail on the head when you're talking about purpose, because I believe that purpose is the key to happiness. Um, and, and, you know, all the talk about happiness, and you rarely hear anybody define it. Hmm. What is happiness? We conflate sure. happiness with pleasure. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got a two-year-old granddaughter, mm-hmm. and you know, my, my wife made her a little outfit for her doll, and she said, that makes me happy. Well, at two years old, that's entirely appropriate. When we get to be 22 and 42 and 62, and it's the, it's the toys that make us happy, mm-hmm. there's a problem. That kind of, that, it's really just pleasure, right? this momentary pleasure of having what you want. Mm-hmm. Whether it's ice cream or a new car or listening to your favorite music, these, these sort of visceral pleasures that feel good in the moment give us very little lasting feeling of satisfaction. Sure. And happiness comes from the sense that my life means something. Hmm. I have a vision. I have values. I have goals. I have a purpose. And I am working towards the fulfillment of that purpose in a way where I'm seeing progress. In fact, if you look in, in biblical Hebrew, uh, there are at least eight words that translate as some form of joy or happiness. Mm-hmm. And when you get down to the root of those words, they all have some meaning of growth or progress or direction. Mm. Wow. Because that's where the sense of joy comes from. And then even when we go through the difficult times, Happiness is not is not at odds with suffering. There are you know there 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 are reasons to suffer in this world. There's illness, there's death, there's poverty, there's social ills. I mean, there are lots of reasons to be depressed about the world. And in our personal lives, we go through personal pain. If I if I'm building something and I miss the nail and hit my thumb, it hurts. Do I stop being happy because my thumb hurts? Not necessarily. Happiness is a is a state of mind. It's a it's a it's a default. If I have done the work and oriented myself to a point where I am in a state of happiness, but the problem is that we expect it to be this euphoric feeling when really it's just kind of a baseline. There's still going to be peaks and valleys no matter where we are. Well, you know, on this show, we'd, we'd focus a lot on how people can find their meaning um, and then live their lives by purpose. You know, I, I believe every person is here on earth to make a difference, to have impact. Um, but I think for some people, they never know 
what that is. And I think it's quite a gift when we can identify our meaning early on and then live according to it. Um, so I wonder what permission slip you might give our listeners to um, give themselves permission to go after their meaning and direct their lives according to it. Let's say give yourself permission or I will give you permission. The rabbinic authority here. I will give you to admit when you don't know and admit when you're wrong. One of our great uh, sages of the last generation, Joseph Soloveitchik, said that all extremism and fanaticism come from a lack of security. A person who's secure cannot be an extremist. And what makes us secure is that we've we've done the hard work. I've 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 made mistakes. I've fallen down. King Solomon says. A righteous person gets up seven times, or falls. He says he's a righteous person falls seven times, and every time he gets up again, it's the falling that makes us stronger. The way we, again, let's go back to the gym. Right? We, when you when you lift weights in the gym, you're actually tearing down the muscle, and it heals stronger. When I admit I don't know, when I'm willing to admit that I'm wrong, that's when it's possible to learn. If I have that willingness to learn, then I am moving in the right direction. If I seek wisdom, I will find wisdom, guaranteed. And the more wisdom we acquire, the more confident we become in our worldview, and the less prone to extremism we are, the less defensive we are towards people who don't think like us, and the more we're able to work together to solve our common problems. I mean, I mean, I hope that that happens and soon, so in this lifetime. Well, Jonas and Goldson, thank you so much for being on the Make Meaning podcast. It has been my pleasure, Lynn. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard here, join us over at makemeaning.org to discover how you can add more meaning to your life. And hey, if you like our conversations, please subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world.